have the uh, demise of Stephen in uh, the end of chapter 7. And uh, that's uh, a pretty significant event just in terms of the impact that it makes. You can imagine what would happen. I mean, what if you know one of the brethren in the church where you go got stoned for his faith? You'd uh, probably think about that a while. And this seems to have just kind of initiated a wave of more severe persecution against the Christians. So, how about chapter 8, verses 1 to 3? Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. All right. Um, you know, Saul obviously has uh, a major role to play, not only in Stephen's stoning, but in this persecution in general. If you look back at chapter 6, somewhere, if I can find it. Um... In verse 9, the ones that were, uh, and just starting in chapter 8, but back in chapter 6, verse uh, 9, some of the ones that were opposing Stephen included some from Cilicia and Asia, and, and Saul was from Tarsus and Cilicia. So he may very well have been in the group that was actually trying to argue with Stephen. And then he was in the group that stoned Stephen. And now he takes a leading role in this persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what happened as a result of the church in Jerusalem being persecuted? Yeah, they fled. It spread them out. They scattered. Do you think that's okay? I think that was the intent. <laughs> or God's using the negative to, for his positive. It certainly ends up being that way because it actually, we'll see in the next verse that we didn't read, verse 4, those that were scattered preached the word. So this ended up being a spreading of the message. But... Do you think that it would have been more spiritual for these people just to stay there and stand up to the persecution instead of getting scared and fleeing from it? You ever thought about that? Are there other examples of early Christians fleeing persecution? Yeah, like who? Well, Paul. Paul himself fled from city after city. Um, and I think we've even got, you know, some biblical statements to almost encourage that. You look at a passage like Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. That's what he says in Matthew 10 23 to do. You know, if you get persecuted in one place, flee to the next place. Um, you know, I, 
there's a fine line in that. I don't know if you've thought about that very much. I mean, obviously, they shouldn't back down from teaching and preaching boldly. And when they were scattered here, they kept preaching and teaching. And when, you know, others were, were scattered like Paul, he continued preaching and teaching in other places. So, you know, we shouldn't let this intimidate us and keep us quiet. But is there really anything beneficial by just hanging around and letting them stone you too? You know, I don't think that's, I think that might be foolhardy instead of, you know, helpful. So, so I think appropriately they do flee. They end up being scattered a long ways. In, in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, you know, some of them end up in Phoenicia and Cyprus and even Antioch. Which is a long ways. So this uh, this persecution ends up really spreading these guys all over the place. That had been the original t- intention back in one eight, where he said, "You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth." We just didn't know that the method that was going to uh, happen was going to be by persecution, <laughs> you know. But that's that's how uh, the Lord uses what Satan inspired. So it's another case, I think, where what Satan does backfires on him. You try, he's trying to stomp it out, and it ends up just spreading it. You know, kind of like scratching poison ivy or something. <laughs> and what do they do with Stephen's body? Weird. Yeah. That, you know, not all men who die are buried. Not all men who are buried are lamented. And not all who are lamented are lamented by devout men. So I think that that's cool that Stephen, you know, he's buried by and lamented by by devout men. Uh, they were concerned about his death. And then Saul in verse three just takes off like a wild animal, you know, ravaging the church. I mean, he is possessed with this. Yeah, you know, he he get, he enters into their houses and drags off men and women. I mean. You know, this is a matter of he's he's trying to root it out. I mean, he's not just, you know, opposing them when they start, you know, speaking up for it. He's, he's, he's you know, pursuing them and dragging off men and women. You know, he's, a, you know, not, uh, he's not sexist about this, you know. He's going to persecute them all. So he's very serious about this persecution. Comments and questions on those three verses. These people that uh, fled, were, would they have been permanent residents of Jerusalem, or would they have been the ones that were just there at this time? Or I know it doesn't say for sure, but what what is your impression of that? My guess is there's some of both. Weren't there a lot of people there for the, the Passover? The yes, yeah, certainly there have been a lot of people there for Pentecost. Now, I mean, honestly, I don't know how much time has passed here. I don't know if any of these people have already gone back home by now. I don't know that we really have a lot of definition about that. Uh, so that's a question mark. And then, I mean, it, it looks like most of the people fled, except for the apostles. You know, they stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh, so my guess is there are some residents even that fled. But, you know, we don't just have a lot of information. And why didn't the apostles? Yeah, it's a good question. They seem to have wanted to maintain their headquarters in Jerusalem or whatever, and just stay there. I don't know why. Uh, but
that's that's an interesting feature. Well, it looks like it had been especially dangerous for them. Yeah, I know. They hadn't been told to leave. I mean, yeah. they were told to stay there until they were clothed with power. Of they have they been. They have been, but then they weren't told to go somewhere else yet. Maybe. That's maybe too, it, kind of a simplistic answer, but, you know. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe as good as anything. I, I don't really know. I, I will say this. When you look at that situation, then you look at verse 4, therefore those who've been scattered went about preaching the word, that means those are not the apostles who are preaching the word. You know, these are the lay Christians, which is more impressive. You can imagine the apostles would preach the word wherever they went, but these are not the apostles that are preaching the word. Um, so, but I, you know, I don't, I don't have a better answer. Other thoughts? Does to limit mean to mourn? Yes. So here these early Christians are, you know, the, the persecution doesn't stop their preaching. You know, uh, the kind of the persecution didn't create refugees, it created missionaries. You know, isn't that amazing? And, uh, you know, if they were willing to preach because they were persecuted, shouldn't we even be more willing to preach because we're not? You know, it's an amazing thing when you stop and think about it. Would you do that? You know, you know what it's getting you in Jerusalem, so you're going to go somewhere else and do the same thing? That very well could get you the same kind of treatment. All right, other comments or questions? I may have mentioned this earlier, but this whole section of Acts is not so much a section dealing with the work of the apostles. They're in there, but it's not primarily them. Really starting with 6-8, and it really focuses on three men in these sections, 6-8 and Stephen. And you have the whole thing with your Stephen. Then 8-5, Philip. And you have all that Philip did. Both of those were, were men of the seven that were appointed for the widows. And then 9-1, now Saul. And only after we get done with the story of Saul do we go back in 9-32 to look at Peter again. So we've got this interval in here where we look at Stephen, Philip, Saul, and their names start each of those sections. And it's kind of a section that we don't have the emphasis on the work of the Twelve, even though they come into play some in these stories. Alright, uh, anything else you want to say through 8-4? Was it... The authority that Saul had to do this would have been come just from the religious authorities. I would say so. Okay. Just make sure. I mean, the religious authorities have some authority. Yeah. They are also semi-governmental authorities, not the supreme governmental authority, but they do have some governmental authority. All right, five to thirteen. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what he was, or what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. In the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Okay, so Philip goes down to where? Samaria. So we're spreading this now to Judea and Samaria. Um, you remember Jesus uh, had an experience teaching in Samaria in John 4. And uh, you remember also that these seven that were appointed all had Grecian names. They may have been Hellenistic Jews. It's probably more appropriate, be more accepted in Samaria, a Hellenistic Jew preaching than a native Hebrew. Um, so he goes down, and uh, what does he do down there in Samaria? He preaches. And what else does he do? Performs miracles, including what miracle that this is the first time it's mentioned in Acts? Casting out unclean spirits. Yes, he casts out demons. Um, and does other miracles. This is only the second time in the book of Acts that somebody who wasn't an apostle is said to do miracles. Remember who the other one was? David, sure. sure. And I think because the apostles had laid their hands on the seven. That's what I really think. I can't prove that for sure. Uh, but when he's down there, there's this other guy named Simon. There's tons of Simons in the Bible, in the New Testament. And uh, what kind of guy was he? Sorcerer. Yeah, and what had he been doing? Practicing magic and astonishing the people. Yeah. I guess this city could have been thought of as sort of his territory. Philip's coming in and, you know, doing some things. In fact, do you see Philip and Simon being parallel in some senses? Yeah. Weren't they, they, they're both in the same city. They both performed, you know, amazing things that amazed the people. They both proclaimed some things. You know, people gave them both uh, bo gave both of them attention. In a sense, they're kind of in uh, competition. At least, you know, the people are having to make the choice now. You know, they what have they been saying about Simon? That he was someone great. Is that this man is what is called the great power of God? That's what they called Simon. Now, the great power of God is being challenged by the great power of God. And, uh, you know, what do you, what do you do in that case? Well, what did the Samaritans do? Yeah, they believed what he preached and were baptized. They were impressed by what Philip did. 
they saw the difference, uh, which is which is amazing. Are there some things that you can see that are big differences between Simon and Philip? One in particular. One is their claims. I mean, he he was claiming to be something great. Philip was not. He, he claimed to follow someone that was great. Yes. What they proclaimed was different. In five, what was Philip proclaiming? And what was, uh, in nine, what was Simon claiming? To be someone great. See the difference? Simon promoted himself. Philip publicized Christ. I think that's a key difference between those two, besides the fact that evidently what Philip did was more amazing, even, than what Simon was doing. The people could tell the difference. You know, what Simon did was great until Philip came along. You know, you can imagine that. I mean, you know, you can be impressed at any level by somebody until somebody comes along who's a whole lot better, and then suddenly you're not so impressed by the first guy. I'm assuming that Philip's true miracles way outshone Simon's. Well, this kind of, um, you know, puts a little bit of, um, you know, situation in front of Simon. You know, what's he going to do now that all of his followers are thronging to Philip? And what he does is probably not what I would have thought he would have done. You know, he doesn't mount any defense of his own reputation. He doesn't badmouth Philip. What does he do? Yeah. He believes, he's baptized, and he continues as a companion with Philip. And in fact, he is not amazing people anymore. Now he is amazed. You know, if Philip is doing signs that amaze the great power of God, you know, Mr. Simon, those must have been amazing miracles indeed. Simon ought to have known. You know, I mean, I bet bet somebody like him would be one of the first ones to be able to detect this is the real thing. (laughs) This is not like what I'm doing. So Simon ends up being just like the Samaritans. In 12, they believed and were being baptized. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and was baptized. Now what does Jesus say about the one who believes and is baptized? Shall we say? Yeah. So I would take it that Simon, as well as the Samaritans, were saved. They did exactly what Jesus said. They didn't say they believed and were baptized. Luke says, by inspiration, they believed and they were baptized. Comments and questions? Just kind of a pointing out, um, in verse 6 and in verse 10, there's a phrase that, they were giving attention to something. Yes. And that is the same, it's the same words there. Yes. So they went from giving attention to Simon, all of them from the smallest to the greatest, to the crowds who were giving attention to Philip. And like you already said, we also have the Simon had astonished them, and now he was being amazed. And if I remember right, that's also the same, same word 
there. So yeah, those kind of verbal parallels really show you kind of uh, the point Luke is trying to draw out in telling the story. Other questions or comments? Fourteen to twenty-four. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Who then, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them; they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Wow. So, the apostles in Jerusalem find out that Samaria has received the word of God, and what did they do? Sent a couple people to check it out. Sent Peter and John. Yes. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they were laying their hands on them and giving them the Holy Spirit. Now that's a pleasant contrast from what John tried to do the last time he was in the Samaritan city. At least the last time we know about. Remember what he wanted to pray for there? Fire. Fire to come down and consume the city. That's Luke 9, 52 to 54. Now he calls down the Holy Spirit on these people. I think he's uh, changed a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that's good. And uh, I would assume this surely means that Peter and John are pleased with what's happening here and that they approve of it, that this uh, work has the, their endorsement. And uh, so they lay their hands on these uh, Samaritan Christians now and give them the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting thing, because did Philip have the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yeah, how else could he have done those signs and wonders that he did? But what, what Philip does not do, he does not lay his hands on these people to give them the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, apostles, do that. And the text says in verse 18 that Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now it doesn't say that Simon thought it. It says Simon saw it. Simon, this, this is again what the narrator said Simon saw. Not what Simon thought he saw. So evidently this is what really happened. That it was visible that the Holy Spirit was passed on through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now, if that was something you could see, that tells me something. I mean, um, you got the Holy Spirit in you? Do you? I say you do. Oh, I can't see it. But, but he could see it. 
the Spirit was given by the laying on the Apostles' hands. Could somebody see, has anybody ever witnessed you, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit? I mean, if we're just talking about, like, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and dwelling in us and having a relationship with us, we might be able to see the effect of that. I mean, you might see the fruit of the Spirit. You can see somebody changing their life. But you can actually, you cannot actually see the Spirit being given, the Spirit coming in. But this is something where Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying of the, on of the apostles' hands. So I wonder what he saw. I'm thinking he saw people who before were not working miracles, and now they are. That's what I would say. Yeah. I would say he sees them having spiritual gifts and being able to work signs and wonders, perhaps speak in tongues or prophesy or whatever. And so by these things, he sees that the Spirit is being given by the Apostles' hands. I really suppose that when these people believed and were baptized, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that they had the Holy Spirit in their lives. But this was a special way in which the Holy Spirit was received in a visible sense that enabled them to have these signs and wonders that would show they had a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit. That that may be that may not be everybody that would would analyze the text in that way, but it looks to me like that's the that's the only way I know to really make sense of all of those details. You got some questions and comments on them? Yeah, I guess I'm. But you're just really confused. In verse six, in verse sixteen, when he says, he says, uh, "For it is yet he had fallen upon none of them." They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but I thought I've always heard the ones who were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm saying that this must be talking not just about like the Holy Spirit being in our life, but the Holy Spirit being received in terms of these spiritual gifts that could be seen. Because Acts 2.38 said that if you repent and are baptized, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. And yet the Holy Spirit hadn't come into any of them yet, and the apostles laid their hands and Simon saw the Spirit was given by the apostles' hands. Then, then the Holy Spirit, when the apostles gave it, mm-hmm. must have shown himself in some visible way, like the miracles and signs and wonders. Okay. And so I'm taking it that, sure, they had the Holy Spirit in the sense that all Christians do, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit in a special way until the apostles laid their heads on them. It is a little bit complicated. But, again, to me, that's the most reasonable way of fitting all those statements together. I know we're not there yet, but in Acts 19, the question is asked, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, well, we don't even... No, there is a Holy Spirit, which prompted then the question, well, what baptism did you receive? And it was John's baptism. So then they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then hands were laid on Paul's hands. Yes, thank you. Um, were laid on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And were able to speak in tongues and prophesy. Yeah. So it's, it's similar. I think so. I think so. And I think Paul assumed that 
if they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit, there's a problem with their baptism because when you're baptized, you would have heard of the Holy Spirit, you received the Holy Spirit. So, and yet, Paul was able to do more than what you would receive just by being baptized. He was also able, as an apostle, to lay his hands on the people so that they could work the spiritual gifts. And I think it corresponds with Acts 6, verse 6, where the apostles laid their hands on the seven. And before that, it was always the signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles, like in 5.12. But after that, these seven, at least two of them, Stephen and Philip, were able to work the signs and wonders. So I think consistently people receive the Holy Spirit in, in the sense that he dwells in them when they're baptized. But, but additionally, if an apostle laid his hands on a Christian, they could receive the Holy Spirit in the sense of being able to work the signs and wonders. Hmm. That doesn't matter. Okay. Then how does Acts 10 fit into that? I think Acts 10 is an exception for a special purpose. Okay. That Acts 10 is God showing that the Gentiles were also to receive the gospel. And he does that by doing something extraordinary. Giving Cornelius and his family the Holy Spirit in a special way before they're even converted and giving them tongues and, and so forth to show God considers them to be acceptable subjects for conversion. And that there's a special similarity to way, the way that Cornelius received the Holy Spirit and what the people did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because he says he fell on him, fell them on just as they fell on us at the beginning. Yeah. So I think there is some specialness in God giving these spiritual gifts directly in Acts 2 and Acts 10. Whereas in all the other cases, the spiritual gifts were mediated through the hands of the apostles. So there were at least two, there were two ways that we know of to get this. Directly from God or through the, of the, through the apostles. For the, for the directly from God kind, that's pretty rare. Yes. Comparatively speaking. Yes. Those are the only two instances that are specified in the Bible. Uh, and it just very much... You know, the day of Pentecost, obviously, that is an exceptional kind of thing. I think everybody sees that. But the way that things are presented in Acts 10 and 11, it certainly seems that that's exceptional also in the sense that this is opening the door once and for all for Gentile conversion. And there will be, there, having taken care of the Jews and the Gentiles, there's no third, there's no group, third group that needs yeah. a special anointing to use that word. Yes. Carefully. So the benefit of those who had the, the apostles' hands laid on them and received the Holy Spirit, the benefit was they could work miracles of, of a broad variety, probably. They could work miracles, they could prophesy, or they could speak in tongues. Not necessarily that all of them did all of those things or had all of the gifts, but they would have some of those gifts. How do you then describe the benefit that one experiences from receiving the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit upon baptism? 
Well, I think that benefit is having the close relationship with the Lord by having the Holy Spirit dwell in the person. There might be several things that could be said about the benefits of that, but I think that would be the general idea. Whereas, if you have the spiritual gifts, you have the ability to actually directly get revelations from God that would be very helpful in a time prior to having it all written. And you'd have the ability to confirm that those revelations really were from God by working the signs and miracles. It's a lot in some of these sections, and it takes a little bit of you know, thought to think through everything that's being said. I feel pretty comfortable with this approach to it, and I've used this for a long time. But, you know, I always try to think back through it, and it looks to me like that's really the implication of all this here in, in Acts 8. Other thoughts or questions or whatever? Now, the, the, the thing about verse 18, which really have in some ways not come to the main point here, what was Simon doing when he saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands? He offered him money. For? To have the authority to be able to do the same thing to everyone. Yes! Wonder why he wanted that. And put him back where he was. He's thinking like a magician, isn't he? <laughs> he? Wants to buy the trade secrets. You know, can't you imagine the commercial possibilities of something like this? If he can actually lay his hands on people and give them spiritual gifts, this would be a bonanza. You know, isn't it true that the sins we have come out of sometimes continue to plague us? Sometimes we get sucked back into the same things we were doing before. That's what I, it looks to me like with Simon. You know, that he's suddenly seeing this and like, whoa, yeah! <laughs> you know, he wants this. Like, that's how Philip could do those things. I got it now. Yeah. And, and what he wants is to be able to give the power to other people to do it. I mean, wow. There is a... Do you know, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing this right. I only see it written. I don't ever hear it spoken. But do you know the word simony? Is that right? Or simony? I'm not sure. Simony? Is that Simonized. I have heard. Yeah. It's, 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 it was the, a word coined from this Simon to refer to the effort to buy a position in the church. Do you know that word? Simon with a Y. In Catholic history, you read of simony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, that's yeah. what I was going to It's I, You know, there's some words that you only read, and I never hear anybody speak them, so I don't know how they're pronounced. But I'm assuming it would be simony. But uh, that is a word I've seen quite a few times. And that's, that's this is where it comes from. Uh, so, um, that's kind of a problem. Uh, <laughs> You know, you, you don't get the impression even reading that before you get Peter's response that this would be something that was a real good way of looking at this. You know, can you imagine? You know, uh, I'll, I'll pay you for this. <laughs> and, uh, wow, Peter lets him have it too. Um, he says, may your silver perish with you. <laughs> so both you and your silver uh, may perish. 
Because he thought he could buy the gift of God. It wasn't something purchasable. He said, you don't have anything to do with it. You have no part or portion in this matter because your heart is not right with God. Uh, do you think that uh, Simon is uh, being uh, overly direct here? Peter. Peter, thank you. Peter. He's in Simon, too. <laughs> but, yes, that wasn't what I was calling him. So. <laughs> it's a case where if you use Simon, you'll be right. Simon says Simon. First guess God, then Simon. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, think about what Peter is risking. Here's an influential follower. I mean, this was pretty cool uh, to for, for Philip to have converted. I mean, you have a man like Simon. I mean, I mean, this is, wow, this is one of the bigger catches we've had. And, and now he's saying all this to him. Can't you imagine people taking great offense at this? Can't you imagine Simon walking off in a huff and saying, I'll never have anything to do with that again? Um, today, we would say something like, well, even though I disagree with some of Simon's techniques, he does draw a lot of people, he does a lot of good, you know. We're, we're always positive. I was just, uh, I, I was uh, reading last night, uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, I always realize things are being taped, but I was reading last night online, a, a discussion uh, between several people in a kind of a Facebook conversation about the Bible, and it was interesting to me. Uh, it, I don't know a lot of the people involved, but, but obviously some of them were Christians and some of them weren't. It's interesting seeing the non-Christians writing and saying, well, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying, and I can see where you're coming from, and I'm not trying to argue with you, and I'm not trying to, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, the typical thing that we're taught is, you know, you should never really disagree. You should certainly never say anything's wrong. No one's ever wrong. Well, I have a different perspective. You know, or something, and that's exactly what they were doing. You know, they were they were you know making careful to suggest that I'm not trying to criticize your belief at all. That's very good for you. This is just the way I look at it, and things like that. And if we're not careful, we fall victim to the same thing. Yeah. And uh, so he says in verse 22, "Repent and pray." That if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Wow. I mean, he almost implies that it might not be possible. You know, it will be a blessing by the grace of God if you were forgiven, even by repenting and praying. But that strikes me as a little strange when you read verse 22. Because this same Peter did not you uh, offer the same approach earlier for how to be forgiven. Do you remember what he said to do to be forgiven in Acts 2? Repent and be baptized. Here he says to repent and pray. Now praying is not exactly the same thing as being baptized. So why has Peter changed? Simon had already been baptized. Yes. So this is what someone does who goes astray after he's been baptized, after he's already a Christian. What Peter said in Acts 2 
was to someone who's not a Christian. Now, ironically, a lot of people in the religious world reverse those two. They would teach the non-Christian to repent and pray, and then they'd say that once someone is saved, they ought to repent and be baptized. But Peter says to repent and be baptized to the non-Christian who's never come into the grace of God, and to repent and pray to the Christian who's strayed away. So, what's Simon's uh, <laughs> answer to all of this? Pray for me. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't know any more than what it says there. Would you interpret that as a positive or a negative response? Positive. That's the way I interpret it. Not everyone does, but it looks to me like that's probably positive, that he is humbling himself and asking for prayers. Can you explain that? The other side of that, I, I was thinking it was positive, but how do people... Well, Sam suggests that, well, he's not wanting to pray for himself, and he's not wanting to really deal with this, and just saying, uh, pray for me. Oh, uh, okay. But it looks to me like it's positive. That was quite a, that's quite a situation. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, maybe we ought to think a little bit about being bold when we need to be bold. I mean, is there a time for sharp rebuke? Yes. I mean, I think this was one. And I mean, this is not what you say after the end of a six-month process of trying to restore the sinner. I mean, in this case, now you don't use the same technique for everybody, June 22 and 23, you know, and so But there are times when somebody just needs to be immediately sharply rebuked. I'll use this illustration. Um, and this has been many, many years ago. That I, there was a man in a congregation where I was at who came to me and the elders to say that he was very discouraged with himself spiritually and that he was going to quit. He was going to still send his family. He still believed in this and all, but he just couldn't do it and he was going to quit. We, he went back into a room with me, the elders, and him. And there was one, two really good things that, that happened. One is, of the two elders, one of them was much closer to him than the other one. And the one who was much closer is the one who took the lead. That's always smart. It's with some other cases, it would have been just the opposite. And you, this wouldn't work with everybody. But the, the elder who was close to him knew exactly what he needed. Now, what would you say in that situation? Well, here's what the elder said. He said, you will not do that. That is not right. That's ridiculous. And you have no business even thinking that. And he just yelled at him. And the guy said, you're right. <laughs> and that was that. Now, I've heard that elder other times. He didn't say anything like that at all. But he knew the guy. He was a very black and white, blunt sort of a person. I didn't take, I didn't feel even at the time that the elder was angry or anything like that. He was just telling him what he needed to hear in language that would help wake him up to the seriousness of what he was doing. He wouldn't always do that. But I think sometimes we are so understated 
and so worried we're going to offend someone and we might step on someone's toes that people could listen to everything we said to them and they never even get the impression that they'd done anything wrong. You wouldn't mistake that after Peter's words. So, I mean, I think there's just... Not, and certainly, as again, I'm, I'm not saying one size fits all. But does this size ever fit us in the 21st century? I, I, I'm rebuked by seeing the bluntness and again, you know, I don't take it that Peter lost his temper and he just blew up or anything like that. I think, I assume these were sober, serious words of grave concern for Simon's soul. But he said what he ought to say. This was an outrageous thing. It was a wrong against God. It was a terrible thing for Simon himself. And Peter let him know. I think it, it is obvious that Simon is is just not thinking like a Christian. He's not thinking like the man who obeyed the gospel however long ago that was. Now he sees something that brings him back into his old life. And the words that Peter spoke just had to wake him up. I agree. Two questions. Yes. Did the man continue to come to church and the other question is, did God send that man to say those words? Well, it was Peter, and he spoke by the inspiration of God. He was an apostle that God sent. So it would be pretty difficult to imagine Peter not having God's uh, approval for what he spoke. I think, I think we should understand that Peter said the right things. I know nothing about Simon's history afterwards other than what it says in verse 24 when Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. That seems to me like a positive response. What he did after that, I have no idea. I think she may be talking about the other man we were talking about. Oh, the other man. You're talking about my illustration. Yes, he did. He continued coming to church. And it was, uh, I think I think the guy told him exactly what he ought to have told him in that situation. And yeah, there was no more problem. That never came up again. He is still a faithful Christian. You know, I saw him not too long ago and doing fine. And, uh, but he was just ready to quit. I mean, it was a case in this, in that case, uh, you know, I think knowing the person. You know, some people need more direct statements. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing him, I was taken aback when I heard the other day that I was like, oh no. And then after he said what he had to say, he talked for a little while too. And the guy's like, you're exactly right. I don't know what I was thinking, but that's, you know, and he was just, it was like, that's amazing. You know? I like, I've never heard anybody speak so strongly as what that other did. And I was thinking, this is a disaster. Why are you saying this? And it was perfect. You know, and, uh, I mean, he didn't say anything wrong. He didn't put him down in some sort of, you know, wrong, ugly way. He dealt with what he was saying, but he dealt with it like he needed a dealt with. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't baby him. It's wrong. You can't do that, and we won't let you do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's what he needed. And so, I mean, it's good. It's certainly good to know the person. And, and and there are times when 
you know, we need awakened. You know, there are some, there are times and there are people that if you don't do this, they don't get the point. And certainly, this man that was it was sent to, that would have been his nature. He would. I've never heard him say something that strong. But he was a really down to earth, black and white, tell it like it is kind of a guy. He was the kind of guy who, if he thought something, he would have said it. Never offensively, I didn't think, but he'd say exactly what he thought. Okay. Anything else to verse 24? I, I can't help but uh, uh, think about uh, where Peter says, uh, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Yes. Our, our repentance doesn't obligate God. I couldn't help but think of Joel, too, uh, where yes. Joel is telling the people to repent, and he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Uh, I, I think it's it's important to not get the think get into the thinking that uh, you know all I have to do is repent and God will forgive me. Well, our repentance doesn't obligate God. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not like it's just God jo- God's job and He has to because I repented and so by rights He must. Yeah. yeah. I think I think some tentativeness there shows our humility and our respect for God's right to choose to forgive or not. I'll tell you too, I, I can't help but think that Simon, in all of this, was humbled, or uh, I, I think there's a, a degree of greatness about him in seeing him become a Christian in the first place. Now you mentioned, yes. you know, you're you're almost surprised at what he does, the fact that he he leaves everything behind that he has been, that's just been characteristic of his life for all of these years to become a Christian. And then when he slips back into that mode, he's, he is so severely rebuked for it. And again, I, I can't help but think that that this is a positive response on his part, that he is, he is recognizing that he is lost and he needs their prayers. And he's calling for their prayers. So I, I, I see a kind of greatness in him in uh, the the way that he is willing to submit in both of those cases. Very good. Yeah, I good mean, there, there were times when uh, Paul was preaching in a city and people, instead of changing, had him arrested when when uh, their uh, yeah. business is threatened. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's very good points. Yeah. It, it, you know, in that, I mean, Simon's a great example. Good point. You know, there's, there's certainly examples where other people were you know, bold or whatever, how you how you describe Peter here, and the result was not the same. That doesn't make it wrong. That's correct. And, and the example you used had a good outcome, but if, if it hadn't been that way, that doesn't make it wrong. Good point. And... You know, I, 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 I see this today. I think if Peter, a lot of, you know, a lot of places, if Peter did that today, he'd be the one rebuked. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, right. should have been more gentle, or you should have done this, or, you know. So I, I, I don't know. <coughs> the other thing is, even with the story that you related, you almost prefaced it by you knew the man, that he knew the guy. If you didn't know all those details, would that have seemed even more out of, out of line, you know, so we see that today, and maybe we don't know all the details. Maybe we don't know the 
right the relationships or the you know the background or, or whatever it is about it but yeah good point yeah yeah good 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 thoughts and I mean you know certainly when Jesus or the apostles spoke strongly and people reacted badly that didn't mean they spoke wrongly it means the people reacted badly <laughs> you know sometimes we judge whether or not the preaching was correct by the response right. that's not the right way to do it I think that is very hard for us not to do though I agree if somebody leaves it's because we didn't do it right right yes yeah people will say well how can I how can I say this in such a way that people will accept it well <laughs> that's really not that's not under our control you know it's not it's not that we say it how can we say it in a way that God is pleased that we say it correctly and accurately those are good things to ask but to say it in a way that people will accept it well that's going to depend on them not us Um, you were talking about the, uh, you know, when we sin and we separate ourselves from God, uh, there's times when, you know, I know I know a lot of times for the first couple of years I was a Christian, I was just like, well, God's just going to forgive me. So, you know, and I, I gave that justification to allow myself to sin, you know, and I just, I think, I just repent later, you know what I mean? And, and I just didn't understand that I was far from God in my you know, caring for the Lord, you know what I mean? I, I mean, if I really care and love the Lord, I wouldn't have just been like, oh, well, whatever, you know, just God, I can just sin. And it's, I mean, yeah, I just always thought, well, he's got to forgive me, so, you know, and I mean, and I realized that's a definitely the wrong way of thinking, and so, you know, I just want to throw that out there. So. Good point. <clears throat> yeah. We definitely need to, uh, you know, take seriously our sin and recognize how much we owe to God when He does forgive us. Mm. Other thoughts? Good, good discussion. In verse twenty-one, you have no part or portion in this matter. Is the in this matter? I see that as in the, in like in the process of laying on of hands and imparting spiritual gifts as opposed to um, being a Christian and, and doing God's work. Is that... Well, my margin says that literally it's word in this word, and perhaps that it means the teaching. Okay. No share in the gospel, perhaps, might be the idea okay. with this kind of attitude. Anything else? Because he's not saying you're not it's obvious that you're not good enough to be a Christian at all. That's not what he's saying. With this attitude, he does not share in being a Christian. Okay. Okay. Well, we don't have time to finish this, but let's go ahead and read and talk as we can about 25 to 40. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, and go toward the south, to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. 
He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you know what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a shepherd he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his, humi in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does, this, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaritans in verse 25, verse 26 an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and tells him to do what? Yes, that's a, that's a debatable translation that word means two different things and we're not sure which is correct. I don't know if your translations reflect both or not. Go south or go at midday. Anybody have midday in that? I come on 26. Yeah. In your footnote, okay. Yeah. It's strictly a word that has two meanings, and either one of them fits here. So we're really not sure which he meant. Uh, you can you can make a case for either one. Not a big deal. Um, but where does he want Philip to go? On the road that descends from Jerusalem to Damascus. Yes. And what does he say about that road? Yeah, it's a deserted road. It's interesting, he's been converting so many people in Samaria. Now he's going to go down to this deserted road, and he just gets up and goes. You know, I'm not sure you would necessarily be all that thrilled. Probably some you know, chariots passing through or whatever, but this is not a place where he's going to find this big multitude of people ready to hear the gospel. And yet, that's where the angel tells him to go. And the angel basically gets him pointed in the right direction and then leaves the scene, leaving Philip just to obey the orders. And uh, he gets up and goes. Now, in this story as a whole, you might think about parallels between this story and the story of Cornelius. In both cases, angels initiate the events. And then, the Spirit will give specific instructions to make contact with a foreigner, or at least somebody living or being in a different country, associated with a different country. When invited, you can look at 8.35 and 10.34, they, both Philip and Peter opened their mouth started preaching, it specifically says open their mouth. And baptism in both cases was introduced with a question. What prevents me from being baptized? Or can anyone refuse the water for these to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit? 
So, there's a lot of parallels between those two accounts that look like they were specific enough, perhaps, to be worthy of note. At any rate, when he goes down to this uh, road, there was a guy riding along in the chariot. Now, this is kind of an intriguing thing, because um, this is timing. You know, Philip gets to the road at the time this guy is passing him. I wonder what that took. You know, the angel of the Lord hadn't talked to Philip the right amount of time prior to that for him, you know, and 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 that the guy in the chariot wasn't to that point yet either. You know, so that would be quite a logistical feat to get that to work. And, what we'll see later on, it coincided with what text that the man was reading? <laughs> it, isn't that incredible? You know, the Lord knows how to coordinate. You know, so I think that's just uh, pretty incredible that that all gets done just that way. And when he gets to the point that he needs water in the sermon. I'll tell you what, this is uh, quite well coordinated. Well, that yeah, yeah, it was just a coincidence. I mean, you know, what if you'd have gotten to the baptism part and they passed it, you know, two hours back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Being master of time and space has its advantages. It does, but that's just pretty amazing. You know, the Lord definitely has his ways. And uh, so he see there's this guy, he's an Ethiopian eunuch, who's a court official, a treasurer, evidently, for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who'd been to Jerusalem to worship, and he's on his way back. That leads us to a lot of uh, things to uh, think about. Um, him being a eunuch would have excluded him from full participation in the covenant community. Deuteronomy 23.1, Leviticus 21, and so forth. You know, he couldn't have really been in the congregation of the assembly. So he probably could never have entered the temple complex and things like that. He was kind of a marginal, you know, worshiper. The fact that he was Ethiopian. Now, you know, here, I, I, I'm guessing that either he was a proselyte or maybe better that he was a Jew living in Ethiopia. It's probably my preference on this one. Either one may be a possibility. Um, but if he was a Jew living in Ethiopia, then he could be thought of as an Ethiopian because that's where he lives. And it's not at all uncommon, even in the Old Testament, for Jews to rise in foreign countries to high positions regarding money high positions in general, and especially regarding money. But think about Jews that have been in high positions in the Old Testament. You know, Joseph and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and so forth. So I'm guessing that it might very well be that this guy is an Ethiopian Jew. At any rate, I don't think he's a Gentile, because that would kind of compromise Acts 10 being the opening of the door to the Gentiles. So I'm thinking he's either a proselyte or a, an Ethiopian Jew. But he's from a long ways away. Ethiopia was down there. And he's uh, come all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. And he's on his way back. He, that, that's quite, I mean, man, that's quite a chariot ride. 
there's, there's some there's some good things to say about this. And furthermore, when Philip encounters him in the chariot, what's he doing? Isn't it good to redeem all of our time? You know, what a great thing to be doing on a journey. And I bet that was a trick. You know, he wasn't listening to the Bible on the iPod. You know, I assume he had the Isaiah scroll, you know, that he's reading as they're going along. <laughs> wow, that really is uh, some effort. You have large print. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wow. I mean, he really cares. Comments and questions to this point. Since he was there to worship, would that have been for maybe, a specific... Maybe a feast? Yeah, so I wonder what the time frame is with this. Was he there still from Pentecost, or was he there... Surely more times passed than that. Surely. Yeah, I, we, we don't really know how much time has passed, but... Man, I would think. Maybe he stayed a while. <laughs> and and he hadn't been he hadn't heard the gospel in Jerusalem, evidently. Okay. So I'm guessing, yeah. you know, this is maybe a year or two, three later, and he's gone up for one of the feasts, who knows which one? And he's on his way back. And where is it looks like um, Philip and Peter and John went to Samaria, which is the area up Yes. To the left, I guess, of Jerusalem. Yeah, north, above Jerusalem. Really. Okay. And then the road to Gaza, I don't know where Gaza is. Gaza would have been, I don't, I don't know if I've got a real good map. Yeah, I do. It would have been down below. It, it's, it's on the coast, uh, somewhat below Jerusalem. So that would have been a trip. So why... On the coast of the Mediterranean. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he's headed that direction. Headed home. Yeah. There it is. Okay. So. Yeah. He's the the Ethiopian man's headed home from Jerusalem. You can see that. Right. Philip had a jaunt. Yeah. Do you think that he was carried there by the Spirit, or do you think that he walked? The Since he got up and went, I'm assuming he walked or rode or. What, 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 do you know what would have been the level of his participation in worship at Jerusalem, the units? I don't know. Neither You're supposed to know all that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, could, he couldn't have gone into the inner courts. He could have been in the, the court of the foreigner. Yeah, probably so. It's That's probably as close as he could have gotten. I bet you're right. I don't know the details on that. But he definitely would have been somewhat of an outsider. So they were headed back to Jerusalem, apparently the three of them is what that's, it sounds like. That's what I think. When, yeah, the angel when Philip was told, told Philip, go elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Let those yeah. guys go. Yeah. You veer off toward the coast and south. Yeah, it, it, I, I will make this point later, but while we're at it, I mean, think about this. I don't know what the eunuch did when he continued on his journey after this encounter, but if he continued reading Isaiah three chapters later, mm -hmm. it'll be where God includes the Gentiles and the eunuchs mm -hmm. in the Messiah. 
That'd be really cool. What does a eunuch mean? Somebody who's been castrated. Somebody who can't perform sexually. Oh, is that all it means? Mm -hmm. Either you know, naturally or, un or yeah. by human hands or <laughs> by birth. Sometimes the keepers of the harem would be castrated. Mm. Eunuchized. Yeah, okay. It wasn't unusual for high court officials to have that done to them because then they could not, they had less desire for the, to take over the throne because they could not have heirs and start a family dynasty. So that was a way of Is sort it? of taking care of that problem. This might be out there. I really don't know. This might be out there. This is the first time I've heard this. Is this where the, the fathers of the Catholic Church like don't do the sexuals? I mean, like, I don't think this is where they get it. No. Okay. 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 I had a lady in the congregation one time. You know, this is one of these words that's really hard to even say. She always called him the unch man. <laughs> 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 so this is the unch man. <laughs> You could yeah. call him the Ethiopian or the treasurer or whatever. If There's something else you'd call him. What is it? The I don't know. Remember the I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Egyptian oh, or, or Ethiopian Nobleman. something. Nobleman. Yeah, Queen's treasurer. I don't know. Is that how she was pronouncing eunuch? Was Anch? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what she's talking about. He who laughs last didn't get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> he who laughs last needs to slow. Yeah, yeah. So that's the point. All right, well, our time's up here, so I guess we'll uh, put it close to this and uh, continue with this uh, story next week. Really good story. Really great uh, great things to think about and, and study about. There's really good comments tonight. Good study. Sometimes it's good when we have a uh, little smaller crowd. I think it's... Uh, Thanks for a better study sometimes, so it's really good. Yeah, so none of you are invited back. <laughs> <laughs>